Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm C.S. Song, KPFA's associate theater critic, and my guest in studio is Michael Gene Sullivan. He's a veteran member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Michael performs in the Mime Troupe's current production, Seeing Red, a time-traveling musical, which runs through September 9th at parks and other venues throughout the Bay Area and beyond. Welcome, Michael, and what is this play about? What it's about, really, and the birth of the show was the idea of the the rise and fall and perhaps rise again of socialism in the United States. There was a period after the Civil War when, when the robber barons, as we, talk, we study them in history books, the robber barons were kind of controlling everything. They were buying up railroads. They were buying up the land around the railroads. They controlled the gold supply in the United States. They controlled all the banking. And people were becoming more and more desperate. The Industrial Revolution was finally happening in the United States. Workers had zero rights. They could be worked to death. Children were working in the mines. Farmers were being pushed off their land. And this progressivism started up. After the revolutions that had happened in Europe and uh, 1848, this idea of, well, maybe what's best for the rich isn't best for everybody. Maybe these people are just living off us like these giant leeches stuck on the workers of the world. And so different organizations and proto-unions, because unionism was very, very new, uh, all these organizations, these workers, friendship or benevolent societies and stuff, started working towards changing the economics of the United States and saying it should be the, the vast wealth and abundance in this country should benefit those who are actually creating it, not just those who already have enough money to invest in its creation. What happened to those organizations, that movement's efforts? That movement continued to grow and legislation changed and, and unions started to being formed. But there was always a huge amount of repression through the corporate government in the 1880s and 90s and continued. Always this giant pushback. But there was a point when... There was all this amazing progressivism around before and right after, especially after World War I, but also before World War I, where socialists were running for president, like Eugene Debs, you know, prairie progressivism. Kansas used to be known as one of the most progressive states in the United States. Yeah, what happened? Um, all of these people who saw that they had to look beyond fear and beyond race and beyond national boundaries to really say what's good for the workers, what's good and the workers and farmers having a relationship rather than being set at it. Like right now, we live in a time where the cities, it's the cities against the farmers, you know, when they have so much in common. Um, so workers and farmers coming together and trying to change the kind of the definition of the United States from a capitalist country to a country that has capital but uses it for everyone. Democratic socialism. And so as we're in a period now, that kind of reflects that in a way. How so? We are now at a point where we have a very corporate government, a government run by just business people who do not understand the, that sector. They do not understand nonprofitism. They do not understand what benefits everyone. They think that if something isn't making a profit specifically for them, it is bad. And they have been pushing this philosophy and pushing it until it has crept down again 
through all of the workers and through all of just the average people who don't think of themselves as workers. They don't think of themselves as in the working class. They think of themselves as just, you know, temporarily embarrassed capitalists. I think it was uh, I can't remember the writer who said that. Um, I think it was H.L. Mencken, temporarily embarrassed, you know, millionaires. And so this idea that now as people are realizing how bad they have it and how much how difficult it is to make ends meet, how difficult it is to to feed their families, how difficult it is to try to live without debt, that we are at a crossroads in a way. You know, having this administration in power right now has just brought things more to the point. And the idea is, which way are we going to go? Are we going to let fear and hatred and divisiveness kind of dictate and dominate our politics? Or are we going to come together for the greatest good for the greatest number? So this is the idea, one of the key ideas of the show? The idea of the show is to kind of show these two times. What happened to the socialists and progressivism after World War I, to a large extent, was they got co-opted by the Democratic Party. The Democrats said, well, we'll change enough stuff. And they had to when it came to, you know, after the crash and the Great Depression, they had to come up with something, you know, the New Deal, basically to keep there from being a revolution because there were huge marches. We never hear about that in our history books. We never hear about the huge uh, socialists and communist marches and, and the demand for change in all the different political parties, the Prairie Progressivist Party and, you know, the uh, Democratic Socialist and, the, you know, all of these different parties that we have. We think of this as a two-party system, but there were all of these very progressive parties. Um, but eventually all of that got co-opted by the Democrats uh, some of them, you know, very enthusiastically, but for a large extent, it was just here are the little crumbs that we can flick off our table to the workers. We'll still be super rich, but we can flick these crumbs off and the workers will think these are banquets because they've had nothing before this. So but now that even the New Deal is very much under threat and the great society, Medicare, Social Security, unemployment benefits, all of this stuff. Um, so we're at this point again where will the workers accept the crumbs. If somebody says, we're going to cut Medicare completely, and then they decide to not cut Medicare completely, that's a crumb. They should be expanding Medicare. It's our tax dollars. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to cut funding for schools to make them more efficient. And we're going to make sure that we have charter schools because charter schools make money for someone. That's the only difference. They generally speaking, their, their uh, test scores are lower. But Somebody gets rich from a charter school. It's not better. It's just somebody gets rich. But they'll say, well, we'll give you all waivers. We'll give you all, all these things so that your kid can go to a charter school. They're getting rich. We're getting a crumb. But at least the school didn't close. We should be demanding more. So let's talk about the, the play and the plot of the play. There is time traveling involved. What can you tell us about who the characters are and what happens? Well, the basic idea of the show is there's a main character, a young woman named Bob. And Bob has, uh, has been working in a factory that's being closed down. And her town is dying. You know, there's so many of these small towns, uh, you know, in, in the Rust Belt where people have been working in there, the factories their parents have worked at, and they've been depending on this. And then these companies are just pulling out. They've sometimes cashed in everybody's retirement fund. You know, they've taken away everybody's um, benefits, really for the benefit of the capitalists who run the company. So she's in this position where the factory is going to be moved, and they feel completely powerless 
And so in that situation of absolute powerlessness, she votes for the person that says that he has her best interests in mind. Mm. He's going to fight for her. He's going to bring those jobs back. He's the one who actually listens to her, she thinks. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar, yeah. Just strangely orange-haired, you know. The demagogue, demagogues always say they're listening to the commonest of common folk. People forget Hitler was an elected official. He was elected in a country that was struggling uh, with poverty and incredible inflation after World War One. People were, you know, dying in the streets and fights and huge packs of roving Nazis fighting roving communists. It was dangerous and people had lost their homes. They lost everything. So a guy with a funny mustache comes along and says, I can protect you from all of that. I can protect you from, it's interesting that it's both a hair issue with both of these people. Hmm. Uh, you know, I can protect you from the dangerous foreigners. In our case, people are like looking at Central and South America and in, in Nazi Germany, it was Slavs and Jews. You know, I can protect you from all of these things if you vote for me. I will get your jobs back. I will make you safe in the street. I'll make you feel like proud of being a citizen of this country. So Bob, in our play, has fallen for all of that, that same argument. And she votes for someone who obviously doesn't have her best interest at heart. And she's like, well, what difference does it make anyway? She's not even that passionate about voting for him because she's like, uh, she's just a little person. What difference does it make? Her vote doesn't really matter that much anyway. She might as well try this. So she votes for this candidate. Then what happens? At that point, a spirit, the spirit of Joe Hill, for those who, you know, Joe Hill, the labor activist, singer and martyr, for the workers' rights, his ghost kind of appears to her. He's always looking for someone to inspire, someone to say, this is not how things are supposed to be. This is an option. You know, knuckling under the bosses is an option. You don't have to do it. Taking part in this kind of capitalist society is an option. There are other options. And so what he does is she's in a small struggling town where nobody has any political passion anymore. They've just been defeated. So he takes her back to a time in history that was full of passion. They travel back to, to 1912? Yes. They go back to when the prairie progressives were marching and the socialists were marching and the unions were fired up with the possibility, finally, of the workers having this kind of strength of realizing that you look at the person next to you and whatever, wherever country they came from, they are your fellow worker. Whatever race they are, they're your fellow worker. And that relationship and those needs that you have and the needs that they have are going to be much more in common than the needs of the owners and the needs of the capitalists. It's like, you know, the IWW and these movements that were like, we together can change things. And it's just at that point, so there's so much enthusiasm. And what happened to it? And that's a big part of the play also. What happened to that enthusiasm? It's still, uh, the needs are still there. The issues are still there. The arguments are still there. But people are feeling even more beaten down. And also, a lot of people have just accepted kind of the Cold War capitalist idea of, well, socialism equals dictatorship. And it's like, no, that's totalitarianism. And you can have a totalitarian socialist country. You can also have a totalitarian capitalist country. That would be fascism. It's not the socialism that's the problem. It's the totalitarianism that's the problem. And social democracy, or a, a democratic socialism, really, has always got to be an option. And so, so many people have become so afraid of it. And now, with the Mime Troop, with this show, and different organizations trying to say, we need to push this as an option again. We need to examine it. And so the character Bob is really 
having a chance as a modern, you know, her apathy and her fatalism and her nihilism and all of these things, trying to say, this actually was done to you. The idea that my voting doesn't make any difference or I don't have to really listen to this. This was all, you are um, been subjected to a lot of propaganda. There was a time when this wasn't the case. There was a time when people were passionate about uh, workers' rights. Now we look back at the 60s and we talk about social issues, but it's not as much about workers in the 60s. In the 60s, it's more about, you know, self-expression and civil rights, which are incredibly important. But workers' rights is also incredibly important. It's worker solidarity, and that's what this show is trying to say. What happened? How did that get co-opted? How did that get taken away? And how can we bring it back to the present? What role, I should say roles, do you play in this show, Seeing Red? Well, one of the things is the idea that unions frequently get broken using race and using immigration as a wedge to kind of say, yes, that person's your fellow worker, and yeah, they're in, they're in your union. They're working right next to you on the line. But shouldn't that other job be taken by someone like you? You know, these poor, economically oppressed, white, you know, Christian men who they've got a uh, tradition of having these jobs. But at the same time, they're super beaten down and they're being used and manipulated and told who to hate. And so back in, you know, 1911, 1912, there's still a huge amount of racism, huge, you know, Jim Crow is still in full effect, but the unions were pushing very much against that. There were blacks in the leadership, Asians in the leadership, Latinos in the leadership. Um, and so I play a couple of characters. In the modern play, I'm just the bartender who's like, I've got my small business and my business is doing great because these workers are all losing jobs and they need to drink. Mm. So I'm kind of benefiting from their misery in a way, though I, they're my friends. But that means I'm a little parasitic on, you know. And then at the same time, the other character I play in the past is a union leader who's saying, uh, you know, trying to make sure that we're looking past race. We're looking past regionalism to say we are all in this together. And whatever particular fear that you have of me because I'm black or particular fear because I'm from the city and I'm not from the country or any of these things, you have to put that aside. Because that's a small problem. The big problem is the fact that you're working, you know, 90 or 100 hours a week. The big problem is that your boss isn't actually paying you. The big problem is your kids are endangered by working in coal mines. These are the problems that we have to look at. And so, you know, with Mind Troop shows, one of our traditions is we always write for the world. And because we're doing that, we always want to make sure that our collective and our acting body represents the world. So we're, you know, multiracial, multigenerational, you know, we have all of these, you know, these wonderful performers and we make sure to write for a view of the world that either we want to see or we feel is actually the world that doesn't get reflected, you know. So often plays are very much siloed. It's that white family over there or this black family over there. And if that white family and black family intersect, it's only about race, you know, and it's not about working class issues. It's not about the environment. So the mind trip's always trying to say, no, the world is a bigger place than you think it is. The world is a more diverse place than you think it is. Everybody who isn't white doesn't walk around always thinking, I'm black or I'm Asian. That's not the first thing on our minds. We have other issues. And so to try to show the commonality of the working class. And so that's always a, it's always a very strong thing in our plays. That's Michael Gene Sullivan. He's part of the new San Francisco Mime Troupe production, Seeing Red, a time-traveling musical. It's being performed throughout the Bay Area and beyond. 
Go to sfmt.org for dates and locations. This is the 59th season of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you for having me. And I'm C.S. Song on Bay Area Theater for KPFA.